Good morning, everyone. My name is Louise Bennett. For those of you who are new to the Cato Institute, I'm the Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies here. Uh, today's discussion will hopefully pull together some of the discussion that began yesterday. Um, in, and, and I think we're going to focus on two phrases, um, which, you know, to my mind have become kind of convenient catch-alls for the financial crisis and its aftermath. And two phrases that I'm sure anybody that follows this space is thoroughly sick and tired of hearing. Um, but hopefully we're going to give a slightly different, uh, a different focus today. Um, and those two phrases are, of course, too big to fail and systemic risk. Um, now, we could spend all day debating the etymology um, or the accuracy of these terms, and there is certainly no doubt in my mind that they are overused and a somewhat convenient smokescreen uh, for the various failures, which uh, 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 Mr. Kovacevich spoke about before, which are regulatory and otherwise that have um, taken place over a, a period of decades. Um, but they also raise a number of questions, such as, does too big to fail really exist? Um, perhaps Stuart can send, uh, shed some light on, on this question. And if so, is it a state of nature? Are there some institutions that really are in practice too big to fail? Or is it a regulatory policy, you know, that uh, essentially should we blame the regulators who fear any and every bank failure is a systemic event? Um, or should we blame the institutions themselves? More generally, you know, if we move to a free market system in banking, this is obviously entirely hypothetical because I think we can all agree we're moving in, in the opposite direction. But how do we address a too big to fail question when size is the return for market dominance? How do firms get returns, particularly in the current environment, if they cannot grow in response to natural rather than regulatory incentives? Linked to this question is the second of our two buzz phrases, systemic risk. And I, to, up to this point, have avoided mentioning the words Dodd-Frank, perhaps you can call it post traumatic stress syndrome, but much of Title I and Title II in Dodd-Frank is premised on this idea of an omniscient super-regulator who can foresee any and every build-up of system-wide risk. Now, as our prior speaker indicated, um, that is you know, something that they have yet to achieve in, in, in a history of, of, of um, uh, regulation. So I'm of an optimistic disposition, but Regulators don't have a great track record in this area. And given that, what are the alternatives um, you know, to, to avoid a system-wide crisis if such a thing indeed exists? With that, you've heard enough from me, so I'll introduce the speakers. Each speaker will make some introductory remarks at the podium, and then we will proceed to a round table, although it's not really a round table. Um, and, and then I'm going to open it up to audience uh, questions. So on my right, Andrew Ullman is a partner in the Financial Services and Government Affairs Group in the Washington office of Venable. Prior to join, joining the firm, uh, Mr. Ullman was the Chief uh, Minority Counsel and Deputy Staff Director at the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs. Um, he was there in this role during Congress's consideration of the Dodd-Frank Act and played a key role in the debate over Dodd-Frank's systemic risk regulation and resolution authority provisions. 
this means he comes with quite a unique inside perspective, um, although he likes to tell us we shouldn't blame him for Dodd-Frank's provisions, but they would have been worse if he wasn't there. Um, and, I, and I believe that. And Mr. Ullman received his BA in economics from Washington and Lee, and his JD from Washington and Lee University School of Law. Uh, directly to my left, prior to embarking on a career as a financial journalist, Martin Hutchinson had been an international merchant banker in London, New York, and Croatia with nearly 30 years' experience. He ran derivatives platforms for two European banks before serving as a director of a Spanish venture capital company, an advisor to the Korean uh, company uh, Sukyong and chairman of a U.S. modular building company. I'm not entirely sure what that is, but I'm sure you can enlighten us. <laughs> he was also responsible for setting up Croatia's debt capital markets post-communist rule. He is the author of Great Conservatives, a book on British political history, and along with Cato adjunct scholar Kevin Dowd of Alchemists of Loss, which discusses the causes and consequences of the 2008 financial crisis. He currently publishes a weekly column of economic and market commentary, The Bear's Lair, and is a correspondent for Reuters Breaking Views. He has a first-class honors degree from Trinity College, Cambridge, and an MBA from Harvard Business School. And then our final speaker, Stuart Plessard, he joined a Standard & Poor's Financial Institutions rating team in 2010 as a credit analyst. He covers large, complex bank uh, credits such as J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup and comments regularly on developments in the banking industry as it pertains to ratings. In addition, he heads an internal global banking team focusing on harmonizing ratings and analytics for large, complex global credits. Stuart uh, joined uh, Standard & Poor in 2006 as, as an equity analyst and was awarded Best on the Street by the Wall Street Journal two years in a row. Uh, Stuart received a BA in economics from the University of Michigan and an MBA from NYU Stern School of, uh, Stern School of Business. So with that, I'll hand over to Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Lise, for that uh, nice uh, introduction. Um, and thank you for having me here today. Uh, as as uh, Lou said, um, I got my introduction um, and experience on, on Too Big to Fail uh, up front and close. Um, I was at the Senate Banking Committee uh, from 2005 until uh, uh, last year. And so I was there during TARP and then uh, for all of the, um, the financial crisis and then um, was there for the entire Dodd-Frank process. Um, which I think has given me um, a little bit different perspective uh, about the importance of thinking about both kind of too big to fail and systemic risk regula regulation, which I'll talk about in a second, I see is somewhat interrelated, but in a different way than is usually uh, thought of, um, is both not only uh, realizing that it's important to think about these issues, not only so from a solely economic perspective, or so the legal issue uh, perspective, which they often are, and those are certainly important. But there's also an important political dynamic because all of these issues happen um, in real time policy making, uh, 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 decision making processes, and through institutions. And if you don't think about those um, types of, of issues and how the economic um, consequences and incentives mesh with the legal uh, structure and, and property rights um, and discretion for regulators versus rules with the institutions, whether it be the regulators in Congress in our kind of democratic form of government, 
uh, you can miss things. Uh, so I think the issues are, are both really uh, important, not only for economic reasons, but also for political. Um, I think a lot of the problems with Dodd-Frank have been well discussed, and many of you have, have heard them. And I think um, that maybe what I would talk about is just some th ways to think about how to deal with these issues uh, going forward and to, to start maybe the conversation to be, well, where do we go from here? You know, we've heard about all the problems with Dodd-Frank. So um, if we don't want to have another, if we want to avoid another financial crisis and learn from the lessons, you know, what should we be thinking about at this point? And I think the, one of the first things to do is to realize that um, the legal superstructure that we have keeps up with developments in the market. That's very important. And I think it's something that often, um, particularly supporters of free markets, sometimes forget is that um, markets depend on legal structures and legal property rights to make sure it's clear on how property rights are handled. And we've seen just in you know, the last 30 years remarkable changes in our, in our markets, both the speed, um, the complexity, uh, the innovativeness. Uh, you know, I, I can, just the Internet alone has created amazing new issues uh, for, for financial institutions. Um, and the entire uh, uh, kind of computer revolution in the last 40 years has really changed many things. And we need to make sure that the financial uh, regulatory structure certainly keeps up up with that. And, um, and also that implies thinking a little bit more internationally about, about how we deal with these issues. And I think that means in terms of resolution as well. Um, certainly Dodd-Frank took one approach towards dealing with resolution authority. And um, I think some, many of the critiques about that um, have been uh, you know, well discussed here. But I would say that I think it is important to continue that, 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 that dialogue and thought about how to make sure that we do have a superstructure that deals with and can properly resolve the largest financial institutions. Uh, I think it's an important issue um, that's still ongoing. I think the FDIC is uh, taking a good faith effort in, in trying to figure out how to do it. But it's also an area where I think my experience with the banking committee is that more, more thought needs to be, to be done in a constructive way. Um, particularly by folks who, who favor uh, free markets. Um, but I also think that oh, too much focus on resolution um, and that being viewing too big to fail only through that prism is, um, is somewhat problematic. And it misses really, I think, is almost a more important aspect is to, to avoid that situation or to increase your policy options if you get into another financial crisis. And, and quickly that boils down to is making sure you actually have a competitive and dynamic financial markets industry. If you think back about the financial crisis, one of the things that, that actually was good um, and that helped to, uh, avoid even some worse problems was that there were a fair number of institutions that could, had the balance sheets um, to, um, to assume other institutions that had gotten into trouble. So you know that uh, that is very instructive. That's typically how, even with smaller institutions, how banks uh, are resolved. Uh, that's the optimal way is to have another bank assume it, but purchase it. Uh, takes it takes away from uh, having the FDIC and any uh, prospect of taxpayer assistance uh, there. So if you want to create a, a, a marketplace where the market takes care of these issues, um, so that if an institution um, finds itself in financial trouble, which you, you, you in many ways um, is going to you expect is going to happen in a competitive market. Sometimes bets don't pay off. That's that's what we expect. Um, 
is that you have options for institutions to, to be able to come in and, and purchase that institution. Um, but I think when this is where I think systemic risk regulation now comes in is that Dodd-Frank, particularly through Section 165, is imposing a very rigid uh, financial regulatory structure on any institution over $50 billion. Um, I think I'm very concerned about the long-term consequences of that, particularly um, for the competitiveness of the market. And so what are, you know, more specifically, what are the concerns? Um, one is, is that it could start to focus in uh, in creating a more uh, utility-like regulation and creating banks that think more like utilities. And I think one of the concerns that we saw during Dodd-Frank was um, many of the supporters of Dodd-Frank viewed banks not as private entities uh, and uh, as private companies to be part of a free market, but more as public uh, instrumentalities, um, almost public utilities. And that was the thinking of, 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 of some of the, the discussions there. And I think that's highly problematic. Um, the moment you start viewing banks as utilities, um, that means they start to offer the same products. There's no innovation. They have the same risk, risk strategies. And, it, and that last point in particular, I think, is, is something that has not gotten enough uh, appreciation, is that the risk, um, if systemic risk regulation means that every institution over $50 billion suddenly has, starts to move towards the same business model, the same type of capital uh, regulation and risk management strategies, you run into a real kind of lemmings of impact as well, where they're all, they're all susceptible to the same type of shock. Rather than having banks with lots of different risk models, lots of different risk strategies where one may, may not uh, pan out, but the other ones do. And that diversity of a market is healthy. It's, um, it's where innovation comes from. And I think from a uh, too big to fail perspective is critical. You have more options when, uh, if there is a financial crisis. Um, you know, certainly saying that more competition uh, is going to be helpful to solve a problem is not a radical thing to, to, to say at Cato. And, um, um, but I think it's something that it's, it's very difficult sometimes in this um, political environment to suggest that competition still is a good idea. Um, it's, um, you know, the, the, the approach of Dodd-Frank is so heavy-handed uh, in terms of regulation that, um, that I think we're losing sight of the importance of making sure you have a vibrant competitive market. And that's not only just good for consumers, but it's also good for taxpayers. It's good for the innovation of the market. So um, I'm happy to discuss more of that, but I'll just leave you with one additional thought, and this comes back to the, the kind of political side of things, is that the other important aspect I think uh, I've come to appreciate on this is that um, the important role that Congress can play in these issues. Um, it's often um, thought of as you know, Congress passes a, 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 a bill delegating authority to, to the regulators, and then it kind of, kind of checks out and it lets them do their job. But I think a more healthy oversight by Congress is also hel helpful for, for the regulators to make sure they do their jobs, um, make sure they implement statutes correctly. Um, but it also me means uh, that um, there's a better dialogue between, I think, the American people and Congress on what's happening in financial regulatory space. Because at the end of the day, um, uh, making sure the American people understand what happens in finance is very, very important. Um, um, if there's one lesson I took from my time on the committee is that an informed electorate on these issues is critical because they can be complex. These issues, um, uh, and particularly in a crisis, um, it's oftentimes people don't understand what's going on. 
and having members of Congress more engaged actually in, under, in the re oversight process of financial uh, regulation will get, make them better able to, to speak to the constituents about, about these issues. I think forums like this are wonderful about um, making sure that um, these issues are thoroughly discussed so that um, it helps us make better informed decisions. And um, um, uh, especially as we think about what are the next steps we take that how do we, to, re -correct, to correct some of the mistakes that we've had of Dodd-Frank. I'll leave it there. I should, uh, uh, that seems not, oh, there we go. Um, I should mention that uh, Martin has prepared uh, some slides which will be available online um, if you're uh, interested after, after the uh, presentation. Thanks. I'd like to um, focus my short introduction today on the question of uh, sources of systemic risk. A presentation I've prepared goes into the other areas of um, this discussion, but uh, having rather little time, I thought sources is the most important question. And firstly, I'd suggest that too big to fail is not the central problem, because today, in today's markets, interconnectedness between banks is very high, risk management systems are very similar, leverage is high everywhere, funny money created by Messrs Bernanke and Yellen is funny for everybody, and technological risks are universal. And therefore, if one of the banks goes, whole clusters of them are going to go. And so there's really no point in worrying about too big to fail, because if you get a banking crash, it'll happen to not necessarily everybody, but a large segment of the banks. Uh, it is my contention that there are many more sources of systemic risk today than there were 30, 40 years ago when I started in banking in the 1970s. Um, Firstly, interconnectedness has been vastly increased by modern finance, such as derivatives, credit default swaps. In the old days, you had an interbank market and some bond and stock deals, not much else. Whereas today, with securitization, um, derivatives, credit default swaps, everybody has obligations to everybody else. So if one key player with a good network goes, you've got big losses on pretty well everybody else in the market, and probably some of the other players will have critical losses. Secondly, everybody uses the same risk management, or at least closely related systems. They're all Gaussian. This is what failed in 2007, 2008. It undervalues pathological products such as um, credit default swaps and CDOs. And uh, if you get David Vinyar, the finance uh, chief of Goldman Sachs, saying in 2007, we're seeing 25 standard deviation events day after day, that means that the model is total rubbish because you should not see 25 standard deviation events more often than once in the life of a million universe. 20 standard deviation, 15 are oftener, but 25 is just an unimaginable, um, unlikely event. And basically, tails are much fatter than the risk management models believe. Uh, you should use a Cauchy system for very long tails, which is a Cauchy distribution instead of the Gaussian one. And you should use fuzzy logic management for fat interconnected tails, such as uh, CDOs. And uh, my book, Alchemists of Law, sets all this out. I'm unhappy to say that it was 
not effective because JP Morgan perpetrated the London Whale fully 18 months after Alchemists of Lost was published, thus proving they hadn't read it. A third area um, of systemic risk is leverage. Much of it's hidden in derivatives positions. For example, credit default swaps options are unbelievably leveraged. You've got 1,000, 10,000 to 1 potential loss if it goes wrong. A mark-to-market simply doesn't work. The markets are very thin, very illiquid, and if it goes wrong, the obligation will explode in size. And so marking to market and think you've got everything covered is, is nonsense. Um, in addition, the Basel risk-weighted capital rules uh, on leverage are an invitation to play games. For example, government debt being zero-weighted. Uh, what that's done is made banks invest like mad in government debt, which is very convenient for banks for governments financing their idiot deficits in the last five years, but of course has substantially increased the risk to banks, not least interest rate risks from long-term government debt versus short-term funding. And cheap and easy liabilities make the leverage problem much worse, and indeed negative real interest rates, such as we've had for the last six years, make the problem worse still. A third um, source of systemic risk that's increased is concentration. The 1927 McFadden Act prohibited interstate banking, made banks riskier. As Mr. Kovacevic said, small banks have risks because they're concentrated, but they were also smaller. 1994, that was repealed. They then had the merger wave of the late 90s, um, partly abetted by Mr. Kovacevic himself. That added huge risk because it created much larger banks. There's obviously a protection when the biggies have different strategies. For example, Wells Fargo, which is mostly retail, will probably avoid J.P. Morgan Chase's mistakes or Citigroup's mistakes, which have a very large investment banking and trading component. Uh, a fourth additional risk is shadow banking. Uh, money market funds, contrary to popular opinion, aren't much of a problem. Uh, the biggest loss on a money market fund was 1% of its assets by reserve primary in 08, and that was only because it had Lehman Brothers debt. Um, obviously, every now and then, somebody's going to lose 1% of their money in a money market fund. It doesn't justify adding huge levels of regulation. But on the other hand, shadow banking includes mortgage REITs, which have a huge rate risk because they invest in fixed-rate mortgages and fund themselves in the overnight market. So they have a rate risk and a liquidity risk, and basically it's something like a trillion dollar in assets market, so it probably wouldn't bring the whole system down, but a trillion dollars is a trillion dollars. It's still a pretty major problem, and it's more or less guaranteed to go wrong when the Fed increases interest rates. Um, And then asset-backed commercial paper and securitization vehicles are somewhere in the middle. Um, but they do add risk to the system. Another source of systemic risk is sheer incomprehensibility. Back in the 70s, even the 80s, one understood (coughs) roughly what banks were doing. There's no question the regulators didn't understand uh, CDOs or credit default swaps uh, in 2008. They were obviously flying completely blind. Um, To a large extent, the banks didn't understand them either, and they certainly couldn't manage their risk. They didn't understand that CDOs were highly correlated because they all had subprime mortgages in them. And so the rating agencies rated these things AAA, uh, which was perfectly reasonable based on the Gaussian models that the rating agencies and the banks used. But Gaussian models were rubbish. The things were all correlated, and therefore they all went bust, causing a huge hole. 
Um, banks are now subject to technological risks that the vast don't understand, and hacker risk in particular is a jungle at any time a predator could take out a large chunk of the banking system. Another source of systemic risk which we didn't have before is speed. Fast trading by computers is intrinsically uncontrollable, and as we've seen a couple of times with moderate meltdowns, has the capacity to cause the whole system to collapse. A rogue computer can lose a lot more money than a rogue trader. Circuit breakers in the markets help, but if you have circuit breakers in the markets, you then can't hedge properly, because at any time uh, you've got nothing to hedge with because the market shuts on you suddenly. Uh, another source of systemic risk is monetary policy. Loose money encourages leveraging, increases instability. I'd argue that money's been too loose since February 1995, um, but there's no question that the looseness increased uh, astronomically in October 2008. Monetary policy, loose money also produces a get-rich-quick culture on Wall Street in particular. That's especially a problem on trading desks who tend to have a get-rich-quick culture anyway, but it affects the entire bank because everybody's bonuses is based on sort of take the money and run. Uh, illiquidity is an additional source of systemic risk. Bonds and shares were reasonably liquid in the old days. That was the principal problem in the London Whale case because he was trading um, credit default swaps on an index and basically he was controlling something like 60 or 70% of the volume in those uh, CDS, so there was no liquidity at all. They were happily marking them to a market that didn't exist. Uh, you can't get out of arcane derivatives positions. That's the problem with them. You can get out of interest rate swaps, but the fancy stuff you can't. And the multiplication of instruments worsens the risk because traders try to control markets. If you've got someone like the London Whale who sort of goes around saying, I'm the biggest honcho in the market and I'm going to control index CDS, you've got a real problem. Uh, finally, regulation. Deposit insurance increases leverage. Banks had much less leverage. They had about 20% capital before we had deposit insurance. Um, the idea that little old ladies should do credit analysis on their banks is, of course, unkind to little old ladies. But on the other hand, it sure as hell makes everybody think straight. Um, and the complexity of regulations has greatly increased the chance of toxic interactions. And in addition, you've got the interaction between banks and the regulators. Uh, for example, the 2004 change in the SEC's net capital rule for large brokers is what caused them all to be um, leveraged 30 to 1 instead of 15 to 1, which is what they were leveraged before 2004, basically doubled the problem. And then you've also got the emasculation of the Volcker rule, where a perfectly simple concept becomes, I don't know, 100, 200 pages of regulations that basically doesn't make anybody do anything. Um, you've got a technological uh, source of risk that didn't previously exist. Uh, my son has helped me on this because he works for a financial tech company. I can't say I understand it at all. I'm much too old, and although I was a maths graduate, it wasn't anything to do with technology. Um, banks all use the same programs for certain tasks, and so open SSL's heartbleed bug in April and another in June 2014 um, caused bits of the system to go down. Heartbleed was an encryption software with one employee surviving on $2,000 a year of donations um, and yet was used by a large portion of the financial system. Bugs allow bad guys to get personal details. They're open, it opens everybody's systems to hackers until they're updated. And the question is, how many of these are there? 
Um, you've also got the NSA and other governments, certainly in the early days of the internet, cheerfully inserting vulnerabilities into software, which wasn't very helpful of them. And uh, you've got the legacy systems in bank backends, which I actually think are less of a problem than uh, my son does, partly because I remember, which he doesn't, the 2000 um, Y2K problem, which turned out to be a completely damp squib, and the Italian uh, Minister of Technology came out in February 2000 and said, we in Italy congratulate ourselves on having spent absolutely nothing in solving this problem, which didn't exist. And quite frankly, I think the Italians got that one right. Um, <coughs> my son says a hack is more damaging in a small universally used open source system than a big one. Uh, new integrated packages for consumer banking are uh, danger because people don't understand them, everybody uses them. New big data models, of course, nobody understands what's going on there. Possible social engineering attacks on bank top management. If bank top management are foolish enough to be on Facebook, which I'm not, uh, then they can be attacked by, um, you know, the, through social media and all sorts of things can happen to them. They can be blackmailed, for example. And then you've got the quality of the tech guys and the regulators and the big banks because, of course, Silicon Valley um, is attracting them all the time and tends to attract away the best. But the final source of systemic risk that wasn't there 30 years ago, wasn't even there 10 years ago, really, and is now, is that banking has an asbestos level of legal risk. Um, just as the asbestos companies, more than half of them went bust in the 1980s, so the banks, as of early June, had suffered 88 billion in fines, given 7 billion for City and some other bits and pieces, that number now has to be over 100 billion, and that's since 2008, so that's in five and a half years. Doesn't matter a damn, of course, if you're subsidizing the banks by keeping interest rates funny, and therefore they're making two, three, four percent a year on their bond positions with no risk while Bernanke and Yellen are still there. Um, but the proliferation of products brings new legal risks as well as new product risks. Um, the uh, fines and judgments are a source of funding for governments and lawyers, so they're not going to go away. 25,000 pages of regulations under Dodd-Frank. Each one of those regulations is potentially a lawsuit because each one of those regulations is potentially where a bank's doing something wrong and can be sued. You'll get another lot of suits from the investors in Jobs Act companies, which are the people um, who have um, allowed small businesses to finance themselves without writing a proper prospectus or getting registered with the SEC. In my opinion, that's a legal disaster waiting to happen. And the systemic, the lawyer problem, I think, is a systemic problem as soon as the market turns down because the lawsuits aren't going to stop when the profitability of banking disappears. And at that point, the judgments will exceed the profits and you'll find the top end of the system at any rate goes bust. So in summary, I think the next one's going to be much worse than the last one, and we may end up by ba bankrupting both the banking system and the government and going cheerfully back to the 12th century without government bonds, without banks, and finding out how much fun that will be. So, um, very optimistic viewpoint. <laughs> I'll hand over to Stuart, who hopefully has something good to say about rating. Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. It's good to be here today. Um, 
I guess the rating agencies have been touched up a bit in the previous speakers. And just to say that I am not from the structured department, I cover the banks for the rating agencies, but we have made a lot of revamping of criteria uh, to try to see what was wrong in the past and, and, and come out with a better product going forward. Um, as a rating agency, we're, we're basically agnostic to policy. We're not trying to set it. We're reacting to it and rating accordingly. Um, the, the issue of government support and too big to fail is something as a banking analyst that we answer questions every day, and this is a very topical question. We are, to state it there right now, we do still have government support factored into our ratings for the largest eight systemic banks. Um, we have these banks on negative outlook, which in rating speak is a one in three chance that it could be downgraded in the next two years. But specifically, we have the negative outlook on the banking holding company. I'll run through a little bit of the, the mechanics of the, uh, the wind down, and I think it's been alluded to earlier uh, as well. So um, I guess the, the starting with the, the mechanics or Dodd-Frank, pre-Dodd-Frank, pre-Dodd-Frank, there really were no rules of how to wind down these institutions, unless you consider Hank Paulson on his knees in Congress a plan, which, which wasn't much of a plan. Uh, so so what, we, what, what happened in Dodd-Frank is they're trying to come up with, with a plan to say, A, there's no, no bank, individual bank will get equity injected to the bank, um, and, and, but they're still able to give the systemic support to the system. And that was written into Dodd-Frank, and, and since then there's been some progression of how does this work, because the, how this works is really important to, to, to uh, prevail in terms of the system of the linkages in the system. And I think that's one of the key aspects of why are these banks so important? Why can't they be wound down in a way that the smaller banks are done on a regular basis through uh, an FDIC type of transaction and either sold off? And it's because they're big and they're connected to the rest of the world and there are a lot of implications for that happening. So these linkages, um, for these banks, they're they're in all countries around the world. Um, so the way the way this the the wind down is is supposed to act is, first there should be in Title One these banks are putting together living wills, trying to get them less complex, and the first order of business is can they be wound down under ordinary bankruptcy rules? And this these living wills, which are in progression right now, are getting at that. And at the very least, what they'll do is. What could be done is they'll say, okay, you are too complex as a bank as you stand right now. You need to sell these subsidiaries, do this, this, and that. And, and that's taking place. There are some banks are shrinking in some degree at, uh, as part of the living wills. It's also as part of a lot of the regulation, particularly the leverage rules, which, uh, which are, are punitive for, for big asset banks. Um, but these, the next step is Title II, orderly liquidation authority. If it's deemed that this bank really is um, insolvent, it will move into orderly liquidation. And at that point, basically, the assets are going to be transferred to a bridge bank. The whole, the whole co um, is going to be left in receivership. And at risk will be the, the um, equity holders and possibly the debt holders. This is all going to play out as how big a loss is and what is the capital stack to get you to the point of debt holders that, that, are, that are part of this mix. Um, the operating entities will go on as business as usual, and the money will be funneled down to the operating entities. And so that is why, from a rating agency, when I said earlier, we don't have negative outlooks on the operating entities, because we think that the Dodd-Frank Act is looking to, to salvage the operating entities and the whole co debt holders, though, could be at risk based on the plan. Um, so 
take you over a little bit to how do we come up with our ratings and what are we looking for to possibly downgrade these um, holding company entities. Um, we came up with new criteria in November 2011, and what, in that criteria, we, we formalized government support. And basically, we looked at whether a bank, there, there's a couple of aspects of it. First is whether a bank is highly systemically important or moderately systemically important or not systemic at all. The eight banks that I refer to are highly systemic. We're deeming them in the US and that basis on how they might impact the economy, their linkages international. Um, and, and so there are eight banks that we're deeming highly systemically important. Then we move over and look at the government and are they um, highly supportive, supportive, or support uncertain, which not going to support. And at, currently, we deem the US government as supportive. And, and we look at the standalone credit profile, what the rating would be of the bank without the support. There's a table. We look at the sovereign rating. The higher the sovereign rating and, the, and where the bank stands, this would be the notch uplift. They're basically one or two notches. The higher the standalone entity is, the lower the notches will be because you get closer to the sovereign rating of, of the US. Um, so, so, so that's how the construct works. And what we're looking for in terms of what's to come and what would, what would cause us to remove the support is there are hurdles with, with Dodd-Frank. And one of them is there's a notice of proposed rulemaking that has been in the works for, for a while now and seems like it was end of 2014. Now we're hearing first quarter of 2015, which is basically going to put together the capital stack of what are the banks required to hold as a, as in terms of their their um, assets and how and what percent and what percent by what bank because the larger systemic bank the notion is they may need to hold more of this so basically the the construct of it is in the numerator there's equity and debt and in the denominator is basically what we understand is going to be risk weighted assets based on Basel three risk weightings and coming up with some percentage of what this should be it's it, it's around twenty percent but it could vary by bank. Once we understand that, and once we understand the pecking order of debt and who will be, um, uh, you know, what, what is the, the, the waterfall um, is, is, is one hurdle, and, and we should see that soon. The others that we pointed to is global cooperation, which admittedly is not something that's gonna be solved immediately, but it is a hurdle, and we could speak about it a little more because global cooperation involves a couple things. You have these entities that are in all these countries. If the local regulator in another country starts to ring fence one of its banks and doesn't trust that it will be wound down and the funds will be given to this entity, or if they start to unwind the derivatives, which are the key part of the whole linkages, in the US, under US law, those derivatives will have stays and the, the, the counterparties will, will keep to the derivatives. But if they're international derivatives, which a lot of them are, and the local regulator starts the ring fence and starts to unwind, then you have chaos uh, going on. So cooperation globally is a key part of, of this process. Um, and I would say as well, just um, a, a, another part in terms of uh, other aspects is I think the Dodd-Frank, the wind down is set up for a very idiosyncratic one bank failure. The hard part to understand is what would happen, and if you think about the last crisis, there was a couple of banks there, but there was some on the ropes that if one went down, would they suddenly have three or four in the bucket here? And that's a big aspect. From a rating agency, we are looking at that, and we're, we're, we're going to rate to what we feel the will is and the political will is, and the political will does seem to say we are not going to have, um, we're not going to bail out a bank, and debt holders are going to have to take 
a, uh, a haircut. And that's what we're looking at. And we want, we, what we believe, why we have it in there today is if it happened tomorrow, they're not ready for it, but they are moving towards getting prepared for this. I, I'd comment that the, the preparation and, and what this is, is, is look, it's, it's better than no plan before. And obviously there's some, um, a lot of thinking that's behind winding down these banks. And this should preserve the banks in general, in terms of you would think of from a higher valuation when you have the government at your back. One of the key aspects of this plan is the government is supplying a liquidity fund to keep this going. And this will work only as much as the market believes that it is working in the government behind it. And that's why this capital stack is very important to understand that there really is equity to inject into these operating entities and that the government is going to be at the back with this liquidity fund to keep, to keep this moving along. Um, I, I would th say personally that one aspect I think about in, in terms of that is that you have operating entities, they're owned for a while by the government, you're a company trying to produce loans, why are you sticking around with this operating entity if you're a CFO explaining that you're, you're doing business with the government? Um, I'd wanna maybe just make a couple of comments to link to the previous speaker here, which uh, was, was quite an interesting session and perhaps this could be interesting thoughts or my views at least on some of the aspects that were touched. Uh, first of all, I would say that obviously Wells Fargo is a very well-run bank and it's one of our highest rated banks that we cover. And so unfortunately not all management is operating in a way that is conservative and, and well-managed. Um, the stress test was talked about. The stress test is one of the aspects of Dodd-Frank. Yes, in, it may have been a bit cruder when it started, but this is many years of progression and it keeps getting finer and finer. Yes, the banks are kept in the dark, but there is a reason for that. Um, and this, the stress test, I would say, that in the crisis was the event that turned the markets around. Even though, all these banks are were sound, and it turned out were sound, although you, the government put in a lot of support to the system, and perhaps some wouldn't have been as sound as they were if they didn't. Um, the stress test sort of gave the market the confidence that, yes, these banks are really as good as, as, as they, they claim to be, and it was an objective source doing it. And the stress test today keeps capital in the system in a way. I will say that banks are really highly regulated today. The issue has been touched on is the movement to the shadow banking industry and where some of this risk could go that are not as regulated. And quite frankly, a lot of bank talent is moving over to the shadow banking industry because you're not making the money you did there and you have a lot of things to check and you have to do a lot of uh, aspects of banking that are unpleasant that you, you didn't have to do before. Um, I would say as well, we, we talked about the debt holders taking a risk and will that help? The problem is the low interest rate environment. In a low interest rate environment, investors look for risk and they don't look, look for reward and they don't look at the risk aspect of it and we're in that now. So just because we may, debt holders are possibly on the hook for bank debt, there, a lot of them may be looking at, but the yield is good enough and we're not gonna keep the banks in check because we gotta go for yield right now. And so that's one aspect of the debt holders would always keep the banks in check. I think a lot of the regulation, some of it good, some of it bad, keeps the banks in check to more degree than they were before. And that's why things are moving over to another aspect of risk in the system. Um, I would also comment that given the legal issues that some of the banks that bailed out banks in the past have occurred, it's gonna be interesting to see how the FDIC can work through some of these buy-ins, if you will, because a lot of these banks are going to say, there's no way I'm going to do that again based on what we just went through in the past year. Um, and finally, I'll, I'll end it on 
You know, there is a lot of regulation, a lot of pages. On a personal note, I, I like to get to the root of the cause. A lot of these toxic issues were created by poor lending standards. I mean, if that was eliminated, a lot of all the other issues that resulted would also have not occurred. And there really, there's a lot of comments on qualified mortgages, the qualified residential mortgage rule. It, it seems to be getting more lax, although I would say that a lot of the products that were there before were not, are not there anymore, particularly the interest-only type of loans. They're talking about removing some home equity products. Uh, but if we can get at that, that would help keep uh, the solve the risk issue to some degree. The problem is, of course, there's policy of who should get loans, why aren't customers people entitled to own a home, how can they get a home? It's definitely more difficult. That's why the rentage, rental market is up where it is right now. So these are the, the play between eliminating risk, what level of risk, and, and, and as we said, it all then moves to another part of the system. Shadow banking could be an aspect where it is. The good part about shadow banking to some degree is some of it is not leveraged and couldn't cause some of these issues, although the mortgage financing, the banks are connected by giving these short-term loans to them. And, and people, when there's fear in the air, everyone is irrational. It's really easy to speak about these wind-down plans when we're sitting here and everything is moving along. The problem is, do you blink when there's panic in the air and everyone thinks that every bank is going to fail, even though it might seem irrational? That's what the mind of fear is irrational. I'll leave it there. So I think the, the first question I have, and it's sort of for the panel uh, generally, I'll, I'll let you kind of go in, in order, but um, when you look, as there sort of seems to be a bit of a tension because on one hand, um, we're saying, well, you know, so the risk modeling and all of this can be a, a useful tool um, for addressing some of the, uh, you know, the, the lack of... of, of oversight in, in, in the past. On the other hand, we heard from um, uh, Dick Kovacevic beforehand, uh, diversity is really the key to banking stability. Um, the more diversified the operations of any, of any institution, um, the better. So the question I have is when we, we look at sort of a global uh, the global capital standards and we look at, at, at risk modeling, there seems to me to be a focus on kind of concentrating so-called safe assets in uh, treasuries, other types of government uh, securities. Uh, and there definitely seems to be a move towards, I know they're sort of trying to fine tune some of the risk weightings, but there seems to be a move towards concentration rather than diversification of assets. Now, I, I, that's just my observation, but I'd like to open that up to the panel and, you know, get other people's views. Um, perhaps, Stuart, I could start with you and then we sure. can move along. So a couple of comments on risk. I, I would say that um, one of the things we look at in risk is, is, is this diversification, which is important. And certainly if you're in one state, let's say doing one product, you could have problems if that product suddenly falls out of favor. The, 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 the other aspect I would say on that is that even doing that with these large diversifications, certain pockets of risk, a la the London whale that causes a $6 billion loss, could, even though you're diversified, you could get into big trouble and escalate an amount of loss. I think in JP Morgan's case, the offset of that is because they're so diversified and big, they make about $30 billion a year pre-tax, which is helpful when you have a $6 billion loss. So um, I, I would also say in terms of risk, what we look at and what I, I look at personally is, is, is 
the risk systems are when when banks do these acquisitions and start piling on different banks, it, it gets a little dangerous because they have different systems interacting with each other. So a uniform risk system in from a bank is a really important um, a tool because thing, the, the technology is the key to how you're going to find the errors. And if you don't, if you're not upfront there, and if you're cutting back on expenses, which banks are, and you're cutting back on technology, that's a big no-no for us right now. I'd say finally, when you talk about yes, there is a concentration in product. They're sovereign products. They're MBS and Treasuries. I guess it's bad if your government is bad and, does, and is, is doesn't have uh, uh, is insolvent in how they're looking at managing their own debt. But we view you know, the um, government debt of the U.S. government, almost AAA, I'll say. Uh, and so, um, so, so it's not bad, but, but there are aspects of, in other countries, you have Italy, um, Greece, the, the banks are all buying their own government debt. And interestingly enough, Basel is a, looks like they're addressing that, coming up by saying, you know, these are not a 0% risk weights. And by the way, as a rating agency, we have our own capital model. We rate them based on our, we, we risk weight them based on the rating of the debt. So there's a more punitive charge of your owning Italian sovereign versus US sovereign. Okay. Risk models are only any use if the models themselves are, are, are good. If you have, if you're using Gaussian risk models for all your risk management, then everybody who's being modeled will tend to favor products with either very long tails or very fat tails because the model will understate their risk and by and large you're going to be able to make more money out of them. And that's why the credit default swap market was so popular. And um, you're seeing other examples of that as well. Likewise, if you have zero risk waiting for government debt, then banks will just buy government debt ad infinitum because they're allowed to be infinitely leveraged on it. I therefore think that regulators um, telling banks they have to use the same risk models are dangerous because the risk models aren't perfect. And regulators telling banks they have to use the same risk weightings are dangerous because they drive uh, banks into um, the same securities. And indeed, we've seen in the last few years that banks being forced to buy government securities is not morally bad for the banks, which sure as hell is morally bad for the governments, because it allows them to borrow like mad and just stuff it into the banks. And um, we certainly, in my days of um, looking at third world debt, spent a great deal of time trying to prevent the banking system merely existing as a funnel to finance the idiocies of the government. And so if you've got a system that encourages that, then governments are allowed to do all kinds of crazy things and waste everybody's money and not go back to taxpayers, which, of course, you know, produces a reaction from the political system because people don't like to pay more taxes. So instead, they finance themselves from the banks. And at least for five, ten years, if you're the US, you can go on doing this. And then the, um, you know, the chickens come home to roost about 2025. I mean, whether we have the crash in 2015 or 2025, my crystal ball is a little unclear as to when it's coming, but it sure as hell coming. And then, of course, it's, it's a it's win-win a situation because when that happens, you can blame the private sector. Yes, it's of course. the bank's fault, yes, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Andrew? Yeah, I think the point is um, also shows that the level of prescriptiveness that we now have in our financial regulation and the way we regulate banks, uh, the detail... Um, uh, of how to run a bank has been so regulated 
thousands and thousands of pages now of regulations, not only on capital, but any form of lending, that um, at some point, one has to ask yourself, at what point does, does the judgment of, of the banker be overridden by that of the regulator? And there's certainly an important role for regulation as an overseer in making sure that, um, that improper risks aren't being taken, but the day-to-day -day determinations about which risks to assume and how to, how to engage in risk management um, seems to be moving more and more away from actual bankers towards uh, regulatory models. And that, that creates incentives for uniformity, um, makes it difficult for unique business models to come along. Uh, it also leads to a different type of institution. Um, you know, following up the earlier point, one of the reasons uh, it makes sense that uh, people are leaving banks uh, and commercial banks is because they're, they're becoming increasingly bureaucratic because of all the regulations. When you can go off to um, a lately regulated non-bank institution, engage in, in, in actually fulfill what you think are, is a good business strategy without uh, having a regulator say, well, I don't think you want to do that and you have to do this and fill out these six forms uh, or 6,000 forms. Um, that's, that's really one I think of the, the, the real problem that they get is it's uh, certainly capital regulations are important, but the level of prescriptiveness now is, is really quite surprising and staggering. And then um, moving also to something that a couple of, of, of you touched on is this issue of uh, profitability of banking. And I think that there's, it sort of has become a, an article of faith that profitability in the banking sector is somehow a bad thing. And it must, you know, it must indicate all sorts of malfeasance on the parts of the, of, of the participants. Um, but without, you know, profitable banks, you do have a problem in a crisis because, as Martin indicated, you know, in the next crisis, you won't necessarily have other organizations that kind of can buy each other up and, and, and assist the government. And we remember last time that it was a number of private banks that, that, that assisted uh, the Fed in, in, in their you know, in their in their efforts. So, um, I just want to sort of get a sense of of you know how you look at it. How do you how do you become profitable in an environment like the current one? So, you want to start? Yeah. So, I would say that the U.S. banking system, the U.S. banks now are probably one of the most profitable in the world. Just it's not a great relative scale, put that out there as well. But, but I think the important part is, can you clear your cost of capital? And that's basically around 9%. So you need to earn a return on equity over 9%. And I think that on an FDIC, all FDIC, the, they're, they're about 9% right now. The problem is that a lot of this is being achieved by massive reserve releases and not through true profitability. The other problem is, that spread income, which is how banks make most of their money, is really under pressure because the long-term rate uh, is, is, is around 2.5% and, and it's a very flat yield curve. And so, and, and it looks like it may stay that way for a while, but you know, we'll see. So, and, and I would say that banks are really not in, interested in making this tiny spread income of getting some money and then buying a government bond as they, they wanna make loans. Um, underwriting standards are what they are and, 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 and keep it back. Demand is what it is as well. Um, but I, I would say that there are banks who are there. I think that you could argue and say banks are becoming more like a utility and that's why the creative people are moving out of the banking industry to other aspects. But they should be able to clear their, their cost of capital and 
and sufficiently supply the system what it is, I think what, what's at stake is that a lot of the better management banks are being brought back to the level of this mediocre because they can't do some of the things that they were good at. And But what's good for the system as a whole is there is a lot of unintelligent managers in banking and they do really dumb things. And when you're a bank that you're smart, you're unfortunately connected to all these banks. There's a lot of counterparty risks. So this is an important aspect. So I think profitability is enough. It's not going to be what it once was, but uh, I don't think the banking industry is going to go away, although there are some technological aspects in the future that are interesting that our banks need, just like any business, to adopt to um, and, and, and be at the focal point of where they are. Well, firstly, <clears throat> don't knock 2.5% as a rate <laughs> of profit, because if you can leverage that infinitely, which you can by borrowing short and buying government bonds, and if you have connections with nice Mr. Bernanke and nice Ms. Yellen, so you know that during your period running the bank, they're not going to put interest rates up, then essentially you've got a huge free ride because 2.5% leverage 20 times is 50% per annum on your capital, and that's enough for anybody. And you've got a risk, obviously, that interest rates go up at some stage, but they haven't done for six years, and with a bit of luck, they'll see you out. So that's where bank profitability is coming from now. I would also like to address Mr. Kovacevic's point that debt is better than equity for banks, because he says equity plus debt is 30% of banking uh, assets. The problem is that you can get debt in any amount if you've got a remotely um, plausible rating from these guys. I mean, City Eagle puts BAA2, that's investment grade BAA2. And you can therefore get debt cheaply and in gigantic amounts from the market uh, without anybody putting any covenants on you at all at the moment because the markets are so li little and if you offer them just, you know, 1% more yield, investors will flood into you. So there's no control at all there. I would suggest that a much better system would be to abolish the tax deductibility of debt and thereby force people into preferred stock or preference shares, depending on which side of the Atlantic you come from, of banks. Because the point about preferred stock or preference shares is that they have votes in the governance of the bank. And therefore, if you've got preferred stockholders getting a fixed dividend and having votes in the overall shareholder governance of the bank, the election of directors, the uh, payment of the CEO and so on, you've got a very much better control than you have merely with debt where the underwriters sell it and then the debt holders have no control at all unless the thing absolute, uh, actually defaults. And so I would suggest that you want your 30% of total assets being capital, but that the non-equity portion needs to be preferred stock, not debt. Yeah, I think the, the point you raised, Liz, is, is a, uh, a key one, as I indicated in my open remarks, um, to just kind of expand on it further, is um, I think it's often thought of is that um, all the Dodd-Frank regulations are only hitting just a couple of big banks. But that's not, um, it's not accurate. Um, it hits the entire banking system. But particularly, any bank that's $50 billion or larger gets hit with the Fed's new enhanced prudential standards. Um, and that is really kind of revolutionizing, I think, um, banking and, and, and banking regulation. Um, and where um, profitability, uh, I think, is, is particularly important is making sure that kind of that um, the banks that are on the, on the ascendant 
that are maybe smaller now, but have come up with a new uh, business model or are very good at managing risk, you want to have an environment where they can thrive and grow. And, and as uh, other institutions are not as efficient, uh, either they buy them and turn them around and make them more profitable, uh, or they slowly kind of see, uh, fall down the rankings. But when you have such high regulatory costs from Dodd-Frank on smaller institutions, I mean, $50 billion is not that big of a bank. I mean, in a $16 you know, trillion economy, $15 billion, $50 billion is a, is a systemic institution. Um, even if you go back and you know, look at Dodd-Frank, um, uh, it didn't consider $50 billion to be a, um, uh, a per se determinant of of, uh, of systemically significant, systemic significance. Um, rather, it was a threshold that was put in there so that you would have more than uh, just systemic banks subject to systemic re regulations on a much more tailored basis. But the way that's been applied has been very uniform. It's focused largely on uh, these uh, almost arbitrary um, asset thresholds which means that banks that shouldn't be subject to certain systemic regulations are. That puts a significant um, regulatory and uh, not only cost, but sometimes hurdles on their not only profitability, but ability to expand and grow and be a healthy institution. So not only is that hurt from um, um, taking care of uh, making sure you have a dynamic financial market, but it means you're, once again, your, your talent starts to migrate, products start to migrate, and you don't have you have a financial system that looks more like utilities, and you know if you're talking about a banking system where your uh, return on equity is you know a very small percent, you're starting to look as we've already heard, um, you're starting to look like utilities. Um, that's a great way to go in the opposite direction that Dodd Frank said it was going to deal with too big to fail, mm. but you can't deal with too big to fail unless you have uh, a vibrant uh, financial market where institutions can grow and do what they should do is make loans and be profitable and return uh, shareholders uh, uh, nice profits. Okay, thanks, Henry. I think that's a, a, a really a, a key point, and I think it came up in, in last year's panel for those of you who were here, that there's just an inherent tension in Dodd-Frank. It kind of wants to do everything, right? It wants to um, micromanage the decisions of institutions but then allow them to fail when those decisions are bad, and I think that's... Uh, clearly uh, problematic for some people. So I'm going to actually open it up to one or two questions now. We're almost out of time, so if you could keep it brief, I'd be appreciative. Are there any questions? Where are the microphones? Uh, okay. There we go. The back. Um, sorry, they're at the back. You can stand up. Thank you. I wonder if you could comment on the uh, potential of Chapter 14 of the Bankruptcy Code to address too big to fail and also the funding mechanism for Chapter 14, if it's going to be sufficient? Um, uh, you know, I spent two years thinking about how to deal with resolution and bankruptcy, and, um, um, and it looked at that issue quite a bit. Um, listen, I think any idea on um, how to improve the resolution of any entity is a great idea, you know, whether it be bankruptcy or the new resolution or what we have under HERA for the GSEs um, is important. And it's an area, I think, actually of academic study where there's not been sufficient attention. I think it was pretty clear. There are not that many people who do work in that area mm. uh, from a kind of a scholarly perspective as opposed to kind of a bankruptcy practitioner. So I think there's a lot of um, study that needs to be, is, could be helpful in that area. 
Um, certainly one of the key issues though that you have to grapple with is this issue of, of um, dip financing. Um, because if you, if a financial institution loses access to dip financing, it, it um, you know, it's like a, 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 a fish, you know, as soon as it stops swimming, it starts to sink. That's, um, and you lose a lot of value. And that uh, the whole purpose of bankruptcy or resolution should be to have a, or, a process whereby uh, institutions can be restructured in the way that minimizes the loss of value. Um, you know, that's an important legal right um, and structure that's important for the operation of free markets. Um, so we can have a reordering of property rights. Thinking about how a, a diff type facility works in bankruptcy for larger financial institutions is, um, is something that would need to be thought about. Um, and it's one of the areas I'd recommend you think about on how uh, a bankruptcy type, say chapter 14 would work. I think it's the key issue. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Just a quick question on stress stress test transparency. It's it sounds like what we're trying to balance is uh, the current system, which is I guess designed to prevent banks from gaming the stress test, uh, versus a more transparent and open system, which would allow outside input and, and comment from the public on improving the models. I would just like the panelist's opinion on how transparent do you think the the stress tests ought to be, balancing those two concerns. So, I mean, I think you're right in, in that one of the reasons for not having as transparent is that banks can game it and each year banks seem to miss something. And the question is whether a stress test needs to have a bank fail to show that it is um, legitimate. I think the U.S. stress test is far and above the European stress test that they're trying to get to some better measure. Um, I, I, I would probably say that you know, I, I also don't trust models completely, but you have to put something down. Likely something is going to occur in a future event that isn't captured in a model in the way the model says. But what you can say about a stress test is that there's no doubt that the banks would have been returning a, a significant amount of capital back to shareholders if somebody wasn't keeping in to check. They are trying to look at some scenarios. I think they make those scenarios public, I think from the public standpoint, you know, what, could, what else should you be looking at as a stress test? But building that stress test and arguing about how it may work or not work is probably a better mind than myself. I will say that I think the Fed has gotten better at it because just you get better at something you just keep doing. So from the 2008 version to the now, it should be better, although I'm not an expert and I haven't checked what it, what it does there. It's interesting when you look at the bank stress versus the government stress, because they both make those public. And is it good to be closer? Or is the bank just trying to game it? Because they usually don't feel that the government is catching what it is that they're doing. Um, and it's hard for it. Look, it's a very broad stress test trying to be idiosyncratic. But the banks know their business better than the government. But I am surprised how some bank stress tests come out to some numbers that are almost inconceivable of how you know they can come out with such a positive stance when you look at it compared to the, to the uh, Fed stress test. Okay, last question, gentleman here in the front, thanks. Thank you, Gerald Chandler. My question's for Mr. Ullman, and it's about the regulatory burden. 
uh, it would seem to me that uh, there would be some very clever law firm or something that would try and sell its services to all the small banks and uh, they'd each pay one over N of the cost of, of reading the laws and figuring out what to do. So in the long term, why should the regulatory burden on small banks be any bigger than on big banks? Why should it be any bigger per per dollar of earnings or per customer or whatever? What, why should it be bigger than the... Well, let me go back then. I thought that what I understood was that for small banks were disadvantaged because they have a higher regulatory burden uh, than big banks because Dodd-Frank is so complicated that it would cost uh, the same yeah. number of dollars to a small bank to figure out what to do with uh, Dodd-Frank and spread it over a smaller number of customers right, right. as paying for a big bank to the same number of dollars would be spread over a large customer. But it would seem to me that the big bank would have its own lawyer and the small bank would have what I'll call a collective lawyer, which would share the cost with a lot of other small banks. So did I understand it that correctly that it was claimed that small banks have a bigger regulatory burden? And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, it's just the compliance um, involved in actually doing um, complying with the rules. I mean, it's not something that you can do off the shelf. I mean, these are highly, mm-hmm. you know, take the, the, um, take the living will plans, for example, those have to each be done, um, for each individual. They're, they're not something that you can say, here's mm-hmm. one plan that works for each institution. It's very, it has to be highly tailored. And so that alone, uh, is a process. You have to come up with your own plan. Um, it's a lot of time of management to come up with something, uh, and then you have to engage with the Fed um, as the part of that process. You know, those submissions are, are quite lengthy. Um, you know, most of these regulations are not things you can kind of take off the shelf. And that's, that's one of the real difficulties here. Talk to any of the you know, bankers. And um, you know, remember, the, the point is also not only the, the kind of pure cost that's a problem. It's um, this kind of u- utility-type uh, approach that um, we're kind of slowly, sometimes rapidly kind of migrating to, that also has, is also important for the larger institutions because you want to have diversity of business models. Um, that's a good, in, 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 talk to anybody in risk management, which the, you know, as we've heard already, diversity in risk strategies. So from a system, you, you want to have institutions with lots of different risk strategies. I think it's in particular likely to be a more of an issue for smaller institutions because uh, usually we see innovation uh, start off small and then grow over time. So to the extent that regulations implo- impose um, many times unintentional barriers to, to either growth or even entry, um, um, those are the real, real problems for creating a dynamic marketplace and making sure you have the healthy enough institutions to ensure that when you do have a financial crisis, they can weather it and uh, assist in making sure that any institution that runs into problems doesn't have to come run into the government. Thank you to our speakers. I think we're going to have to wrap this up so we can get the uh, the next panel on. Um, but uh, thank you for being here today, and I hope the discussion has been interesting and not just too more too big to fail. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you. Bye.